Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Bereson. I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. Now, coming into April, which is Autism Awareness Month, we wanted to spend some time to take a closer look at high-functioning autism. We've noticed over the past six months or so that more families are coming to our website with questions about high-functioning autism, some searching for guidance on different challenges families face, some wanting to learn more about the behaviors stereotypically associated with autism, and some wondering what ever happened to Asperger's syndrome. So to help us explore these questions and more, we're pleased to welcome a special guest, Dr. Robin Tom, a child and adolescent psychiatrist and an adult psychiatrist at the Lurie Center for Autism. And she's also here at Massachusetts General Hospital. In her clinical work, Dr. Tom specializes in diagnosing and treating comorbid psychiatric conditions. And what that means is conditions that coexist uh, with uh, uh, autist, autistic spectrum disorder and other developmental disabilities. Her research interests include the use of medication to treat developmental disabilities, anxiety disorders, and the role of the immune system in autism spectrum disorder, um, which we'll call ASD, just so I won't slip as I just did there. (laughs) Okay, so we know this is going to be a really helpful conversation for many families who've written in. Welcome, Robin. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, before we get started, let's take a minute to check in. How was this week for everybody? Khadija, how about you? I had a pretty good week. I watched this documentary talk, talking about um, how we have too much stuff, and it was so moving that I immediately got up off of the couch and like went in my closet and made three bags of stuff. There's so much stuff in this house. After watching that place, I feel like I'm, I'm overwhelmed with stuff which is, you know, a good problem to have, but I feel like I would feel so much lighter if I had less stuff. So that's my, that's my goal for the next couple of weeks to, to minimize and be a little minimalistic. I don't want to be a minimalist. That's a bit, that's a bridge too far, but a little bit less. How about you, Robin? What was, what, uh, how was your week? It's been good. I've been enjoying the longer days in New England um, trying to get outdoors a little bit more and trying to incorporate a, a little after work walk while the sun's still up. You said New England. Uh, you're not a New Englander. I'm not a New Englander. Where are you, where are you from? <laughs> I'm from the opposite coast. Um, I'm a proud Canadian and grew up in Vancouver. Oh, such a I great. I didn't know that. How was they your have... week, Jane? <laughs> oh. Well, um, I won't riff on Vancouver, but um, I, I actually, uh, since I'm completely vaccinated and so is my wife, we actually had a Passover dinner uh, at my daughter's house. And I got to see my uh, daughter, son-in-law, and my two grandchildren up close and personal uh, in their house. And it was the first time in a year that anyone's come into their house. <laughs> so the kids had no idea what to make of it. Um, and I brought, of course, my puppy, Mishka. So Mishka was very well behaved and enjoyed Passover too. <laughs> that must have been nice to be able to get together in person after was, so long. It, it was great. So um, there's a well-known saying 
uh, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Because it's the way it presents, it can present itself so differently with different people. But to start off a conversation clinically, if we were to ask you, Robin, what is autism spectrum disorder? Especially thinking about children and teens, how would you answer that in a way that the average person could understand? Yeah, I love that quote. I mean, I think it's so true that no two people with ASD are the same, just as no two people in general are the same. When I think about ASD, though, I kind of think of two big buckets of uh, symptoms or areas in life where people have difficulty. So the first is in social communicative functioning. And the second is in restrictive repetitive patterns of behavior. And what I want to emphasize is in both of these domains, there's such variability person to person. Should I give a few examples of kind of the range of challenges that we see in each of these buckets? Sure. Okay. So um, with the first bucket, the social bucket, you know, on one end of the spectrum of ASD, some children and adolescents really have very little interest in social relationships. Uh, these are children who, you know, you might send them to a playground and they're really much happier playing by themselves. Um, may not even, you know, know the names of their classmates or, or really want to learn them. On the other end of the spectrum, there can be much more subtle challenges with social interactions. And that's more, you know, the kid or teenager who has a hard time understanding puns or, you know, really wants to have close relationships, but isn't quite sure how to insert themselves in a conversation. Those are two of the ends of the spectrum. Um, in terms of the repetitive behaviors, there's also a lot of, you know, variation and variety in the areas that people struggle. Uh, some of the things that we see are um, repetitive body movements, uh, repetitive language, like enjoying repeating scripts from certain shows. You know, often one thing we think about with ASD is people who have very intense interests. Um, and sometimes this can be a gift. Um, but other times it can really get in the way if the child really doesn't want to talk about or think about or have anything to do with anything that's not part of that special interest. Um, some of the other challenges are uh, a real strong preference for sameness. These are the kids who kind of notice changes that no other kid would. Um, and that's great when you're looking for something in the house because nothing ever changes position. Um, but other times it, it can be really distressing to the kid when things change that they don't want to change. And then the last part of this bucket is um, kind of atypical sensory reactions. And that can take lots of different flavors as well. So um, being really sensitive to sounds, light, texture. Um, another example is kids who have unusual sensory interests. Um, for example, kids who really enjoy playing with water um, and also kind of an unusual pain tolerance is something we often see. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. I have a question for you that is another kind of thing that we hear a lot about, which is high-functioning autism. What does that really mean? And I guess, as Jean alluded to earlier, where in the world did Asperger's syndrome go? It used to be in our diagnostic manual, and then it disappeared when the DSM-5 came out. So yeah. A lot of us still use it, and but but seriously, what do you think? Where what 
why the change? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess to tackle the first question, high functioning autism or ASD, that's a term that means different things to different people. It's not really a term that has a strict definition. Um, so to some people, it might mean someone who has ASD, but normal language. To others, it might mean someone who has ASD, but you know, normal cognitive function. It means a lot of different things to different people. I think it's really too bad about Asperger's. Um, I think it was a very good term. And um, I think lots of people who were diagnosed with Asperger's really identified with that diagnosis. And it must have been hard when it just like disappeared. Um, You know, these days now, since the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is published, Asperger's has kind of been incorporated into this greater umbrella diagnosis of ASD. But really what it meant was people who had ASD, but had normal cognitive ability and normal language. I I imagine people, since they identified with it so closely, still use the term pretty, pretty frequently. Yeah. And I think that uh, definitely. And I think it's helpful because, you know, when we started this conversation, we were talking about how broad the spectrum is. And I think it can be helpful to describe a certain type of person um, on the spectrum. So we we do get a lot of questions about um, stereotypical behavior that some folks think of when they think about um, high-functioning autism. Asperger's is about to roll off my tongue, but um, things like not understanding nuance, you mentioned puns, or social cues, we're not experiencing emotions the same way. And, you know, we've seen a lot of TV shows that address this with various levels of sensitivity and accuracy. So Boston Legal from the early 2000s, more recently Atypical and The Good Doctor. But I think if you watch if you watch these these folks on TV, some of them might be exaggerated, but some of these symptoms are accurate. To what degree, Robin, are they misrepresented? Because the public sees what they see on TV and they think, ah, now I get it. That's high-functioning ASD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you find that kids with um, high-functioning autism who are actually in classrooms with other kids, they're not separated out as some of the uh, other kids with autism are in super special schools or classrooms. So, so the kids with high-functioning autism are often partially mainstream, that means partially mixed into a regular classroom and partially on their own. Do you find that they're stigmatized or bullied or that there's problems um, that, they're, that they and their families face because of kind of stereotypic behavior that it's just not understandable? Yeah, I think that's definitely a problem. Um, and, you know, as you started to talk about, Gene, you know, I think a lot of these kids look pretty normal, you know, they're not walking around in school with a sign on their forehead saying that they have this, you know, relatively significant neurodevelopmental condition. Um, These are kids who have largely normal language ability, they may do very well in school, they may be, you know, excellent students. Um, But in reality, they have a a significant um, challenge with a lot of social interactions and relationships. Um, and that really kind of sets many of these kids up for 
for, you know, struggles and problems, even such as depression and anxiety and sometimes even suicidal type thoughts. So I guess in thinking about the work that you do with the families, there's such a wide range, as we talked about earlier. What what are the commonalities or, or are there commonalities that you see in terms of their relationship with their family, such as close attachment or sensitivity to, to emotions? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like every kid, every family is different. Um, some areas kind of or times in life that I think can be challenging are um, sometimes when a younger sibling who doesn't have ASD starts achieving developmental milestones like dating, um, driving, going off to college, um, that the young person with ASD has more trouble achieving, that can be a really painful time, um, not, not only for the person with autism, but the whole family. Um, oftentimes we see uh, young people with developmental disabilities um, have very close attachments to their parents. Um, you know, these are the maybe very, you know, among the small handful of people who really understand uh, people with ASD. Um, and, you know, while this is, you know, a huge source of support for the person with ASD, it can make uh, growing up and achieving certain levels of independence more challenging. And Robin, you talked about some of the emotional impact that these, these young people have um, on the spectrum as a result. How about, and this is like in normal times, so how about over the past year? Has anything struck you or stood out in terms of how they may have been impacted a little bit differently from the pandemic than, than other kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think COVID-19 really has had such a large effect on everyone. Um, and no two people with uh, ASD have really been affected in the same way. On the one hand, you know, I've had a number of patients really um, kind of come into their own during the pandemic uh, with the reduced demands for social interactions, a much more kind of predictable schedule and routine, and there's uh, less likely to be kind of uh, interruptions or spontaneous changes to the routine. And some people have really done quite well. Um, others, you know, have really struggled a lot more, particularly if they've lost services that they had prior to the pandemic. Um, Another area of struggle that I've noticed is um, kids who were kind of just developing kind of increased social skills and picking up on nuances of nonverbal communication. The camera just adds a whole level of complexity to that. And um, it seems like online education is, is particularly difficult for many of these young people. So how was this diagnosed uh, and what's the treatment? So you mentioned you mentioned services let, let's get into treatment. Um, uh, with treatment, first of all, what is treatment and what gets better and what stays the same over time? Or is that too much of a generalization? Yeah, I think these are some tough questions. Um, I wonder if we should start by talking about how this is diagnosed. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I think the, the thing to know is that the way that you know ASD is diagnosed is the um, it's really a clinical evaluation. So meeting with someone who has experience working with people with ASD and experience making the diagnosis. Um, ASD is a behaviorally defined symptom, meaning there's you know a list of of behaviors. Um, 
that we look for um, in, on the evaluation. There's no kind of specific blood tests or brain scan that can definitively say if someone has autism or not. When we do an ASD evaluation, um, you know, what we're looking for are, um, you know, first a, a really detailed developmental history, uh, asking the ideally a parent uh, a lot of questions about what the child's social functioning was like early on. Um, an important thing to know is that unlike many other, you know, psychiatric disorders, ASD really starts early in life. Um, so there have to be, you know, at least some signs and symptoms as early as two or three years of age. Um, the social difficulties may not really rise to the level of causing big problems until the, the child's older and they're expected to facilitate more of the uh, social interactions by themselves, but there really has to be some specific signs early on. One of the things that, that I'm finding in my practice is that, you know, many different psychiatric disorders can cause difficulties with social functioning. I mean, you name it, depression, anxiety, social anxiety, even ADHD, all of these disorders cause significant social functioning problems. So coupled with those problems, we have to see evidence of um, certain restricted or repetitive behaviors, some of those things we talked about at the beginning. Um, so the, the core part of the diagnosis is going through that kind of list of behavioral signs and symptoms and seeing if it applies to the child. Um, a couple other things we're keeping an eye out for are what is the person's intellectual um, ability. Um, you know, there are some people with lower cognitive abilities who are not functioning socially as one would expect for their chronologic age, but are, you know, functioning appropriately for their developmental age. So we want to be sure that the difficulty with social functioning is not solely related to intellectual disability. Um, you know, once we make the clinical diagnosis of, of ASD, we then uh, would consider whether we want to make referrals for other supports or services. Um, one area that I almost always refer to is for genetic testing. Right now, the standard of care is for anyone with a new diagnosis of ASD to have genetic testing to be sure that's not part of a greater syndrome that requires more medical treatments. Um, another area that I almost always refer to, especially um, when treating children and teens, is for neuropsych testing. That's where um, a nurse, neuropsychologist can take a much closer look at the child's cognitive abilities, where they're strong, where they're weak, and other areas of functioning like self-help and language. Um, if there's any concern at all for difficulties with speech, um, then speech therapy um, is a treatment that can be very helpful. And I think it's important to remember that we ought to really be thinking about speech therapy not only for the kids who don't have enough words or can't form full sentences, but also kids who have trouble with something called the pragmatics of speech. That's more like knowing when to speak, how much to speak, figuring out how to stay on topic, figuring out how to leave the conversation without just walking away if you're bored. Um, so all of those kind of social aspects of language can benefit from speech therapy. Um, I usually also do a pretty close look for any um, medical problems. There are certain medical problems that are more common in people with ASD, even high-functioning ASD. Um, and, you know, the things that come to mind are problems like seizures, um, 
kind of belly problems like acid reflux, constipation, diarrhea. Um, it's, it's important to make sure that these areas are monitored and treated because they can really make some of the behavioral symptoms of ASD, the social and repetitive ones, worse. You know, I think you want to be thinking about whether the child's at a school that's a good fit for them, both socially and academically, taking into account what are their social skills, what areas do they need to grow in, um, and how are they doing academically. So the second... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Hi, Jane. Well, I was just going to say there was two parts of my question, um, and the second one is uh, with treatment, with good services, with... Um, knowing what's wrong, knowing what the cognitive abilities, the intellectual abilities are, um, can it improve and change? Can it can it change over time? Can it? Is there anything that can be done to make things better? Mm-hmm. If so, where do you see openings for um, improvement? Yeah. You know, when I'm working with children and families, I always see part of my role as instilling hope. Um, because kids, even if they're on a different uh, point in the developmental trajectory, have such ability and capacity to change and make progress. So I think that's one of the most important messages I convey when making a new diagnosis of ASD in a child is that you know, this is where your child is now and they have huge capacity um, to gain skills over time. Um, the thing about ASD, though, is it's It's a neurodevelopmental lifelong condition, meaning that the symptoms are present right from maybe even as early as six months of age, but certainly by two or three. And it's a condition that doesn't really go away over time. Um, The person can really learn a lot more social skills. Um, But, you know, I think the social challenges change over time. When we think about what a preschooler does for socialization, I mean, I think you're doing a pretty good job if you're sitting next to someone and not taking too many of their toys. Um, And there's a lot of kind of adult intervention um, that kind of scaffolds those interactions. Um, But as you get older and older, things just get more and more complex. And um, I think a, a time in childhood when a lot of kids who have normal language abilities and uh, are cognitively, you know, normal, a lot of times they come for an initial diagnosis of ASD around middle school, because that's really when some of the social nuances really come into play. I think I love the idea that you make it a priority to, to instill hope. I just, you know, I can't imagine how important that is to families who come to see you and they don't know what to expect. So I, I think that is so awesome that that is a priority of yours. Um, and I guess in, in this, along the same lines, um, in terms of just helping families, we'd like to always provide guidance to our listeners. Um, so are there any general tips that you can give to parents, teachers, friends, you know, things that they should be mindful of if they have a young person with ASD in their life? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that comes to my mind is disclosure to the person with ASD. Um, one of the things I always encourage is early disclosure. And, um, you know, this is part of, of who the person is. And when I'm sharing the diagnosis with a young person, I often try and focus on not only the areas that are hard for them, but are there any gifts that come with ASD? And um, I think it's such an interesting conversation, even with a relatively young child, you know, what do you like about some of these symptoms that we call them symptoms of ASD, but sometimes they're real gifts and areas that 
kids are often really proud of or the, the area of special interest where they know, you know, not only the whole New York City subway map, but exactly, you know, which train uh, model of train and where it stops and what year it was built. Um, and um, I think that it's important to, um, you know, let people know that it's not a disability, it's a difference. And often when I'm making a diagnosis, I say, you know, I'm not telling you anything new about you. You're still you. You're not autism or ASD. In fact, what I'm telling you is that there are one to two percent of the whole world that's a little bit like you in the way they see the world and interact with the world. I, I love your comment about disclosure. Um, over the years, a number of the kids and then later adults that I've worked with um, were, were fully aware of what they're dealing with themselves um, and know their strengths and weaknesses. And some have become incredible musicians, attorneys, uh, writers, um, but they found a passion. So do you find that, that when you're over time, that when you're working with them to instill hope in them and their families, that um, their areas of strength can be accentuated or emphasized so that there's really something special about them. Now, they might be hypersensitive to sounds. So they might have to kind of like wear earplugs <laughs> from time <laughs> to time, or they might, you know, not wear like wool sweaters because the wool bothers them or their labels bother them. But there's often something special about them. Have you found that to be useful, important. Absolutely. I think it's a very useful way of um, looking at ASD. And um, the point that I really like that you just brought up, Jean, is, or made me think of, is that sometimes it's not so much about changing the person, um, but changing who they're around with and where they're spending time. Um, and I think that's where disclosure becomes very important. So if you know, the person who has ASD knows that they have ASD, they can kind of have a sense of, you know, where am I going to feel comfortable? What situations make me feel happy? I mean, it doesn't make sense, I think, to uh, have the expectation that someone with ASD is going to like love to, um, you know, always be in huge crowds. Um, I mean, you know, I'm making a generalization, but I think to have kind of realistic expectations and goals and adapt the environment, um, these are all helpful strategies. And I think that without disclosure, it's hard to do those things. It, it, it's just to generalize here. It's one of the things I think we do poorly in our country, uh, maybe not so much in Canada, but um, welcoming because Canada is so much more progressive <laughs> and accepting in many ways. But, you know, we all have differences. And whether it's part of our racial, ethnic, sexual identity, Asperger's, um, ASD, um, or, or even mood disorders. I mean, we've had Mark Vonnegut here who's talked about his bipolar disorder. And we, you know, we have um, physicians that talk about, well, I've talked about my autoimmune illness. I mean, it's a burden. Um, I haven't seen the silver lining yet, but I'm sure I, actually I have, you know, I've made friends with other physicians that have had autoimmune struggles of their own. But 
would you say that, would you say, for example, that folks with high functioning autism can be a part of that community of people that everyone's got something, everyone's got strengths and weaknesses and know your weaknesses and celebrate your strengths? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great way of putting it. You know, I, I'm listening to this conversation and, and what comes to my mind is, is the idea of differences versus disability. And, you know, I, whatever one works, I think is, is the one that should be used, but I, I've often heard and, and to some degree lean towards the side of disability or disorder um, because they talk about it allows for you to advocate and, and it teaches them to be able to advocate for themselves Either, I mean, what are what are your thoughts? Either of you, what are your thoughts on using the word disability or disorder um, as opposed to differences? Yeah, I mean, such a great question, Khadija. I think there are pros and cons to either, and I guess my take on it is that it doesn't have to be exclusive, right? There are points when we can think of a person who has differences, and there are certain situations for the same person where it's more helpful to use the term disorder. Um, I think where it helps to use the term disorder is when we really want to um, appreciate or make it clear how a lot of the areas that the person is struggling in may not be entirely under their control. Um, And so, for example, um, you know, the kid who, um, you know, just can't tolerate when math happens after recess when it's really supposed to be free time and has like a huge meltdown and a tantrum. I think if you kind of use the term disorder and recognize that the kid has ASD, you're looking at the kid's behavior in a very different light. Um, And I think that in some ways it's a more empathetic, compassionate way of understanding why the kid is behaving, why they, um, you know, the way that they're behaving. Um, so I think it. I think the term disorder is kind of powerful because it helps us understand that, you know, I mean, I think when we think autism, we think, oh, the person who's kind of alone in the corner or doesn't really like to make a lot of friends. And, you know, certainly our appetites for social interaction are just another feature of human variation, right? Some people love to be in crowds and some people prefer to have small groups of friends and spend a lot of their time alone and not all of the latter have autism. Um, So I think the disorder really kind of highlights when there's enough of this collection of symptoms and when it's severe enough that, that there really is a significant difference that can get in the person's way if they're not aware of it. And if the environment's not aware of, um, you know, these significant challenges. This conversation I, I, makes me think of that poem, uh, Welcome to Holland, which I love, love, love. So is there anything that we've missed that parents should know about a child that has high-functioning ASD? Yeah, I think we've covered a lot. Um, I think if there's anything else that I'd want to highlight is really taking a close look for medical comorbidities or associated problems. Um, these often go, you know, underdiagnosed or missed. And one of the areas that I'm very interested in doing research on is um, ensuring that people with ASD um, in the whole spectrum are getting appropriate preventative um, health care, you know, things like vaccinations and cancer screenings, and um, especially with some of the medications that we 
use um, to treat some of the symptoms of ASD, really making sure that we're monitoring things like weight and cholesterol, hypertension. Well, thanks, Robin. We have to wrap up. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's time. But before we end, uh, what struck you in the news this past week? That's the way we always end these podcasts. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that what's really been in the news a lot is some of the violence towards the Asian American community. And how about you, Khadijah? It's been really hard to rewatch the George Floyd as they are kind of going into um, the courtroom. Um, and, and it just is another reminder of, of the violence, like, like you said, Robin, that has been highlighted over this past year. It's not new, but it's just been highlighted because so many of us have been home and we've kind of, it's kind of been center stage, but it just, it's been really hard to watch, rewatch the, um, that footage and hear people talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I hate to be, so bring it down so low. So Jane, what? Hopefully well, I, I, was gonna be, I was going to I was going to bring it down to even lower level. I mean, I, but I'll try to make it better. Um, uh, the um, the hard part for me, besides what you you both have mentioned, um, is um, this movement to suppress the vote, and the fact that we have to, for all people, have to really work and advocate that everybody gets to vote in the most humane and thoughtful and easy way as possible so that we actually can, you know, um, be a part of a democracy. Um, and, um, what's hopeful about that is that there are, that it's, it's come to the attention of so many people. And I, and I, I really hope that, um, people can rally behind that because, um, if there's one thing that I think is important to everybody, it's that they get to say something about um, about our country and about how we're running it. So, on that um, negative and positive note, or hopefully positive note, I want to thank you, Robin, and I want to thank everybody listening. If you have any questions, comments, or or your own stories of uh, of a child or an adult that has um, high functioning uh, ASD, please. Uh, send us in your questions or your stories Um, and um, I want to thank you for listening we hope our conversation will help you have yours I'm Jean Baresi and I'm Khadija Bufwakens